This is MSCI Perspectives, your source for insights for global investors and access to research and expertise from across the investment industry. I'm your host, Adam Bass, and today is April 20th, 2023. This weekend, the world will celebrate Earth Day for the 54th time. Much like a birthday in your 50s, the occasion lends itself to reflection. It's a time to take stock and see what's going well and where you could probably do with some extra effort before next year rolls around. To help us with this, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, spoiler alert, by the way, there are going to be a lot of acronyms in this episode. The IPCC released its latest report called the Synthesis Report about a month ago which means our guests have had time to digest it. And our first guest... My name is Oliver Marchand, and I am the Global Head of Climate Research at MSCI. As Oliver explained, the synthesis report... It's like a summary of the summary. 234 scientists from 66 countries were involved in the drafting of the report. 14,000 papers were disseminated, and the full report is about 4,000 pages long. This might be the most advanced summary report on any scientific topic ever conducted. There's no other scientific topic where we do have this regular and comprehensive uh, summary. Oliver went on to tell us that the report's findings have a connection for him to another annual ritual, Groundhog Day. No, not that Groundhog Day. Yesterday... We had our Groundhog Day event here in Zurich, Switzerland, which is a peculiar event where they start a big, big fire. They ride with dozens of horses around this huge fire and they wait until a kind of a, a paper uh, made snowman that has explosives in its head um, explodes, that the head explodes. And it usually takes around, let's say, 10 to 20 minutes. And... Funny enough, yesterday, it was the longest time in history. It took 57 minutes. Now, the reason why this is kind of ironic is because it's a traditional belief that if it takes a long time, it is a bad summer. So in the context of climate change, depending on what you call a good or a bad summer, our Groundhog Day event is kind of echoing what the IPCC report is saying. Basically, summers will become hotter and drier, and the prospect of a bad summer, at least in the climate change sense, is becoming more likely. And by a bad summer, what Oliver means is... It's very clear. Um, it's the starkest warning um, that we see globally uh, that climate change is an existential threat and that major inevitable changes lay ahead of us. One of the new things uh, in the report is that they don't say it openly, but I think 1.5 is pretty much impossible to reach. I'm sorry, what? There's no credible scenario to reach 1.5, so the report outlines a pathway to 1.6. Now, we've been speaking with folks on this show long enough for me to recognize that a 1.6 degree rise versus 1.5 is likely a larger spread than it seems when you just say the numbers. But what is that difference? 
I asked Oliver about it. Well, I don't think people exactly know what the difference is. You should think of these different temperature goals as a cliff. If you fall over the cliff, we would experience what is called runaway climate change. So that the Earth's atmospheric um, and ecosystem would kind of spiral out of control so that no matter what we do, we wouldn't be able to control the consequences. The whole idea of limiting warming or limiting climate change is to stay away from that cliff as much as possible. And I think that's has been a little bit of a misconception over the last few years about the two degree goal. It's not a target where we wanna be, but it's actually that cliff that we wanna stay away from. So that's why every 10th of a degree is, is kind of important as a safeguard. After the part about the long hot summer and no credible path to 1.5 degrees, we did also hear Oliver mention that the report does outline a plan to get to 1.6 degrees. That's good, right? I take it kind of with the uh, wise words of the uh, Grand Chess Master Kasparov from Russia, who says that he learned from chess that it's better to have a bad plan than not having a plan at all. Because it does enable us to improve our strategy until we do really have a good strategy. But wait it actually does get a little better from there. That good strategy is included in the report. It's called SSP1. The SSPs are shared socioeconomic pathways, and it's a very scientific way of describing how society could move into the future. And they're numbered from one to five, from one good to five bad. The SSP1, is called the Green Road. And it does land at 1.6 degrees, and it's still theoretically deemed as possible. But it comes with a lot of requirements. One big requirement is that we reduce our emissions by 50% by the year 2030, and that our population growth peaks by mid-century. It means that in terms of economic growth, we completely shift towards sustainable and resource-efficient models. Um, that we see a decline in inequality and poverty. In terms of energy and emissions, it means a rapid shift to renewable energies and a shift away from fossil fuels. When it comes to land use and food systems, it means a significant expansion of forests and a reduction in deforestation, a reduction in the use of synthetic fertilizers, and a rapid shift to a diet that is more plant-based. And in terms of governance and policies, it means global and strong and effective implementations of policies and governments, and it means international cooperation. That, as a package, would mean a 1.6 degree world by the year 2100. So if I'm hearing you correctly, and not to be completely cynical about this, but we basically just have to solve all of the world's problems. Is that an overstatement? I don't think all the problems, but yeah, all of the climate problems, I agree. It is very, very difficult. But, you know, one conclusion of the report is that every tenth of a degree counts. And, well, we just need to try. You know, it's, uh, it's what we need to do. That sentiment right there, the, the idea that we have to start somewhere, that also came up when we spoke with our other guest for today on the climate-adjacent topic of biodiversity. 
My name is Arne Philipp Klug. I'm the Biodiversity Research Director at MSCI. If you're less familiar with biodiversity, why it's important, why it matters for investors, don't worry. As Arne explained, it's not a mainstream topic yet, unlike climate change, but there's also like a growing understanding of the importance of biodiversity. And the climate change debate has certainly also laid the groundwork why investors now care about biodiversity laws more and more. And the answer is quite simple because returns are really at risk. Biodiversity is not just about protecting the polar bear or the honeybee for the sake of beauty of nature. It's really about a business dependency of companies and investors because biodiversity really ensures the healthy ecosystems and the functioning of all natural processes we depend on. And if biodiversity is lost, societies and economies would face existential threats because more than half of the world's economic output really depends highly or moderately on intact ecosystems and their benefits. These benefits include food and raw material supply, climate control, soil formation, water and air purification or pollination. And these are all free services provided by nature and many of the sectors highly depend on it. Maybe an interesting example, the global chocolate production depends on a tiny insect, a biting midge, that is small enough to pollinate the blossoms of a cocoa tree. And if, if this midge becomes extinct, the global chocolate supply is at risk, right? And okay, we might live without chocolate, but our food system really depends on biodiversity, on healthy soils, on water. And 75% of our global food crops rely on animal pollination. Um, but not only these more intuitive sectors are at risk. Um, for example, the pharma sector depends on, on rainforest as a key source for um, medicine and drug development. We will get specifically to the you have to do something part. But before we do, I think it makes sense for us to look at the latest assessment of where we stand in terms of biodiversity. Now, for that, we have to look back a few months before the IPCC climate change report. Not that far, though, just back to December and a conference known as COP15. So in December, right, 190 governments met in Montreal at this UN biodiversity conference, and the parties agreed on a global biodiversity framework that really has some specific goals, and one is to protect 30% of uh, planets, land and water by 2030, so by the end of this decade, and also to phase out subsidies to harm nature. And this agreement can be really considered a milestone, potentially similar to what Paris was for climate, um, because now we expect more national governments to map out action plans to achieve these goals. And this could lead to new regulations affecting companies and investors. And so the COP15 really talks about the importance of the financial markets, about the investment community to tackle biodiversity risks and impacts, to start reporting on these bonds. Also the need for finance to invest in biodiversity-related solutions to tackle the crisis. 2030, that's only seven years from now. Is that a realistic goal? I think the situation right now is not that good because the last decade's goals were not met. So we still really like have a lot of um, room for improvement to meet these goals because um, nature and ecosystems are not in a good shape. 25% of all um, plant animal species um, might face uh, extinction risk in the next um, decades. And um, we've seen really like a degradation of natural ecosystems around the globe. A lot of room for improvement and need for action right now. That's where it starts to get tricky. You see, while climate change and biodiversity risk are certainly linked and both pose clear risks for the world as a whole, as well as investors, 
there are differences. I think where these two are a little bit different is, first of all, I think more research has gone into climate change. The UN process is a lot more advanced. And it's kind of interesting that we can kind of condense down uh, climate change into an emissions problem, whereas um, with biodiversity, it's much more complicated because it touches land, species, the oceans, different habitats, water, soil uh, structure, pollution in the atmosphere. It's, it's much more diverse. Think of the connections and interdependencies of all natural processes on our planet. Take an ecosystem like the forest, for example, if the population of one specific species grows or a new species enter the ecosystem, this change could really have significant impacts on the whole system. It may lead to disruptions in the food chain, in, in water, carbon nutrient cycles and so on. And it's really difficult to measure the impacts of such changes. It's really difficult to say to what extent does a company activity contribute. In addition, there's no harmonized approach or unit how to measure biodiversity. For example, there's no nature budget, there are no nature scenarios, unlike climate change. And we also see data challenges. While corporate disclosure has improved in the past on, on, on nature-related topics, there's still like um, blind spots and limitations Think of the complexities of supply chain in the food industry, for instance. For climate change, we have seen really like companies increasingly report on their measures, on their risks and so on. For biodiversity, that's not still the case. Often we hear complaints from investors saying there's not enough data available to measure risk. And that's certainly true, that data should be better. At the same time, it's not an excuse, right, to do nothing. See, I told you we'd get there. And Arna also went on to say that there are, in fact, a lot of tools and proxies available already to start focusing on, on biodiversity. And so actually to make better informed investment decisions, we see new technologies arising to better measure biodiversity. For example, the use of satellite images, remote sensing technologies, and also more harmonization, especially the upcoming um, task force for nature-related financial disclosure. They have actually um, going to finalize a framework later on this year that could lead to more harmonization in the market. Whether we're talking about biodiversity or climate change, a lot of the push forward has come from governments, from regulations. It's not a panacea, but it is an important part of the green road Oliver talked about, and it has helped, especially in Europe. There's probably hardly a financial organization globally that doesn't have a piece of regulation pending that they need to address. It might be a disclosure. It might be something related to strategy. It might be related to risk management. It's most advanced in Europe. And that is because of the European Union. There is more of a uh, chance for homogeneous uh, regulation. And let me walk you through a couple of examples of climate change regulation, not because our listeners should know all of the details, but I want to highlight how diverse these regulations are. So one popular one is SFDR. Um, so basically, I'm going to explain all acronyms. Ah, uh, a man after my own heart. 
the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, and the title kind of displays or tells you that it's all about disclosure. All financial market participants and financial advisors in the EU need to disclose what categories their investments fall into. And they've established a new kind of taxonomy, you could say, that they call Article 6, Article 8, and Article 9. Article 6 investments These are investments that don't have to do anything with sustainability or ESG. For those, you need to explain that they do no massive harm. For Article 8, these are investments that are not strictly an environmental investment, but they do kind of promote characteristics. So, for example, if you have a fund that's a little bit tilted towards lower emissions, then that's not strictly climate solution, but it does help a little bit climate change. And an Article 9 investment would be a green bond or something that has strict uh, sustainability objectives, kind of an, an impact investment. And effective since 1st of January of this year, all of the technical standards, the so-called regulatory technical standards are out there, and all these institutions have to report. The second one closely related is the EU taxonomy. has been debated a lot. And the EU taxonomy basically identifies um, six environmental objectives, climate change mitigation, adaptation, sustainable uh, use of water, um, circular economy, pollution prevention, biodiversity and ecosystems. So if you call something sustainable, it must comply uh, with the technical screening criteria associated with these objectives. Of different regulations affecting companies and investors, um, the EU taxonomy, the SFDR, and also upcoming reporting standards include specific biodiversity criteria. Another example, the EU has finalized a new regulation last year on deforestation-free supply chains. Certain commodities and products will not be allowed to enter the EU markets anymore. These have led to deforestation. So the EU is really leading in terms of granularity, but also other countries like the United States and the UK have started to establish regulations on biodiversity. These regulations will affect both companies and investors. In the near future, there will be quite ambitious reporting standards to be finalized uh, that affect companies and investors to report on risks and dependencies. Investors really could face more and more pressure to report on their um, yeah, biodiversity risks in their portfolios. A prominent example is France, the Article 29, that's a regulation affecting investors to report on um, to what extent um, their portfolio um, is related to biodiversity risk, impacts, and dependency. So that's something that can really also put a lot of pressure on investors in, 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 in France, but also in other markets. Next up, regulation-wise, the TCFD, or the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. The TCFD recommendations is basically a booklet of 80 pages that explains how to write a climate change strategy report. It has four pillars, governance, strategy, risk management, and metrics and targets. And 4,000 companies in 101 jurisdictions, countries meaning, written a TCFD report by March 2023. So I guess globally that is the, the most popular one. And I'll I'll just uh, point out one more, and that is the EBA Pillar 3 regulation. So the EBA is the European Banking Authority. It oversees um, the financial industry um, in the EU since 2011. It basically has three purposes. 
One is regulatory and supervisory convergence, that there is a level playing field in the EU. Pillar two is risk assessment, that is just stress testing, basically financial stability. And then there is a pillar three, which is all about consumer protection and transparency. And this uh, new climate change regulation is related to this third pillar. And it targets banks. These banks are basically being asked to fill out 10 different templates. You can really think of them as very concrete Excel templates that these banks have to fill out. And they're mostly focused on uh, physical risk. You need to kind of report on uh, the physical risk that you have. So you can see if your job is climate change uh, reporting for uh, an EU financial institution, you have to dig through all of these documents, templates. It's a big, big task. Whether through better data, regulation, or greater recognition of the issues by investors, clearly there's been progress. In many ways, however, the IPCC report, COP15, and even this conversation may still seem somewhat reminiscent of the Groundhog Day you likely thought I was referring to earlier. You know, the movie where Bill Murray lives the same day over and over until he, in some interpretations, learns whatever lessons the universe was trying to teach him. But why is it so important for us to talk about biodiversity and climate change together? Biodiversity uh, and climate change are completely interlinked. They're really yin and yang of the ecological future um, of our planet. On the one hand, climate change does affect many and is the reason for many of the biodiversity issues um, that we currently experience, mainly that we're in the sixth mass extinction uh, period and that we're seeing biodiversity loss at an, at an unprecedented scale. Some of the unsustainable practices of our current economy are both uh, drivers for uh, climate change and the biodiversity crisis. And there's also a reverse link, meaning that biodiversity impacts climate change in that, for example, uh, additional forest fires are drivers of climate change. And many of the solutions to climate change, or at least a large class, it's not only uh, wind farms and vegan burgers, but um, a lot of these solutions, especially uh, the ones that we need in terms of negative emissions technology, are often nature-based. Both issues affect each other. Um, climate change is the main driver of biodiversity loss. Extreme droughts could destroy habitats of many species. Global warming could affect cold-loving species such as the polar bear. Rising sea levels threaten coastal ecosystems. Climate change affects growing seasons of plants. At the same time, biodiversity and intact nature is key to combat climate change because forest wetlands and oceans are really crucial carbon sinks. Forests absorb 20% of man-made GHG emissions, ocean even 25%. So if we continue to cut down forests and pollute oceans, we won't be able to achieve global climate goals. Intact ecosystems are essential to protect against the consequences of, of climate change. Trees provide cooling during heat waves, floodplain landscapes protect against flooding. 
mangroves pro prevent against yeah, coastal erosion and mitigate the effects of hurricanes. Um, and also the biodiversity impact of climate change adaptation must be considered. So if we destroy ecosystems to exploit um, raw materials for electric vehicle batteries, for example, nothing's achieved, right? So basically climate change um, and biodiversity has have to be seen um, together as two um, connected um, crises. If I am an investor and I, and I want to start addressing biodiversity in my portfolio, where do I start? There are many challenges and limitations with respect to data and tools. At the same time, there are also many ways how to start and how to address biodiversity. And investors could, could focus on the most urgent issues, deforestation, pollution, or overuse of natural resources. It could make sense to focus on high-risk sectors and identify companies with weak risk management practices. Think of a mining company operating in a tropical rainforest, and this company does not have a strong policy on biodiversity, no programs, has been involved in serious controversies. So it could really make sense to focus on the laggards. But going forward, looking at biodiversity from a more sector agnostic, from a holistic point of view, would be really crucial because in the end, biodiversity matters for entire economies and sectors, not only for maybe some high profile um, or high risk sectors. And for climate change? With all of these planetary uh, global large scale problems, uh, I personally don't believe that we can say that there is one solution. Hundreds of solutions exist and we really need to uh, employ um, all of them or we need to work on all of them. Policy, technological advancement, education. I want to point out a new uh, technology that is helpful for biodiversity and for climate change which is one of these nature-based uh, solutions. And it's called biochar technology. And what it is, is uh, when you think of burning something, for example, burning wood, we think of it as kind of a binary process. You light wood on fire, it burns, all you've got is ashes. But this burning process is actually a gradual process. So what that means is that in a first phase of the burning, you actually only kind of dry the wood. And what you have then left, when you see a typical camping fire that, that didn't burn to the complete finish, you'll see black parts of charcoal um, remaining um, in, the, in the fire pit. And what you see there, that is charcoal. And it's obvious kind of that you can still continue burning it you can buy charcoal as a fuel for your grill. And the interesting thing is that charcoal is extremely stable. It can last um, in the ground for hundreds of years. And it has a lot of uh, benefits in terms of fertilization. And the last important point is that charcoal actually contains, still contains most of the carbon so what I'm trying to say is that there is a new technology called biochar that has the promise of basically growing trees, converting that into biochar, dumping that on fields where it stores the CO2 that's contained. It helps with fertilization. So, you know, it's a double whammy. You, you're storing carbon and you're helping the biodiversity on the field. And this is an, an emerging technology. And it's it's very, very exciting. And there it is, the flicker of hope. That's all for this week. 
A big thank you from Joe, Yair, and me, and to all of you for listening. You'll find more insights on how investors can work to address climate change and biodiversity at MSCI.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Adam Bass, and this is MSCI Perspectives. Stay safe.